Well, this morning we're starting to get toward the end of Hebrews. Uh, we're here in chapter 10. We're going to look at the first 10 verses, verses 1 through 18 of chapter 10, really kind of conclude this long section about Jesus as high priest. And then we move into some other topics toward the end of chapter 10 and then into verse, uh, chapters 11 through 13. Of course, that great chapter on faith, chapter 11, is coming up. But here are some concluding thoughts <coughs> from the author <coughs> that bring a little bit of a new perspective, a new application, if you will, to the things that he's been talking about. So again, before us this morning is Hebrews 10, verses 1 through 10. Let me read this for us, and as always, a reminder that this is the very word of our living God. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, since the worshippers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me, in the scroll of the book. <clears throat> when he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. <clears throat> so ends again the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant word, and may he write it now upon our hearts as we come before it. Let me pray for us as we do. <clears throat> Once again, our God and Father, we come before you to seek your blessing. We are coming before your word, and we ask that you would bless this time and fulfill your very own promise. That when your word goes out, it doesn't return to you empty. Instead, it accomplishes everything you purpose for it. Instead, it is successful in everything for which you have sent it. May that be true here this morning. We also ask for ourselves that you would pour out your Holy Spirit upon us in abundance, in overflowing, <clears throat> so that our eyes might be open and our ears open to see and to hear all that you have for us this morning from your word. Make it, we ask, a lamp to our feet and a light to our path, that we might walk according to what it teaches us, and also do your will. This we ask, Father, in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. <coughs> Excuse me. Well, up until yesterday, I had a completely different intro for this sermon. <laughs> and then yesterday, one of my friends who's a pastor posted a link to a very, very interesting article in the New York Times, by a columnist named David Brooks. I'm not sure that I know who David Brooks is or have heard of him, but here's the title, an interesting title, The Strange 
persistence of guilt. <laughs> the strange persistence of guilt. Now, David Brooks is, in turn, summarizing and, and commenting on a much longer article, an essay, really, also titled, The Strange Persistence of Guilt. This was written by a man named Wilfred McClay. Again, I have not heard of this person and in a journal that I have also never heard of, the Hedgehog Review. Clever name, I like it, but I have no idea what it's about. <coughs> but those are interesting titles. The Strange Persistence of Guilt. What's so strange about guilt persisting, about guilt continuing without easing up or halting, instead hanging on as kind of a stubborn characteristic of our existence and of our society, guilt persisting. What's so strange about that? Well, it's strange for these authors because the so-called experts in wider society predicted that as our society, as our culture became less and less religious, less and less Christian, less and less godly, and more and more and more secular, that people would then be free from all these superstitious moralities and superstitious sins and superstitious guilt, and people would be free to live rationally, think rationally, live rationally. You're okay, I'm okay. Live and let live. We don't judge one another. We just live in peace and harmony, each to his own. So if this is true, if this is what was predicted, why in the world are people feeling so guilty? Hey, live and let live. What's there to be guilty of? <clears throat> well, the longer essay by, essay by this man named McClay points specifically to a couple of names you're familiar with, Nietzsche and, and Freud, a philosopher and the, kind of the founder of modern psychology. Nietzsche's idea was that if God is dead... So is guilt. Guilt dies as well, because there's no one to judge. There's no one to make us feel guilty. Freud comes along and says, guilt is just an emotional, psychological state of being. It's not real, it's not objective. It's just an unhealthy way of thinking or feeling about things. And so guilt can be treated with therapy. Guilt can be treated uh, as a mental or emotional unhealthiness and can be cured by good, solid, psychological methods. And yet, as both writers point out, guilt remains. Why? Here's how one of the authors puts it, McClay. Whatever donation I make to a charitable organization, it can never be as much as I could have given. I can never diminish my carbon footprint enough, or give to the poor enough, or support medical research enough, or otherwise do the things that would render me morally blameless. Colonialism, slavery, structural poverty, water pollution, deforestation. There's an endless list of items for which you and I can take the rap. And that's kind of how it is in society, isn't it? Or if you're even skeptical that this is the way people actually feel, watch any TV commercial or news story about a charitable organization and their work. Consider how much these kinds of ideas from that quote are a part of our national conversation, our conversation as a society 
in whatever context, political or otherwise. Politically, it's, it's who can be the least guilty <laughs> and win the support of the nation. The one who does more work, the one who spends more tax money to deal with the problems of this life. A huge part of politics, wherever you turn, whatever part of the spectrum, is trying to deal with guilt about problems of society and who has or hasn't done something about it. And everybody's looking at you saying, I have the solution. Come with me and feel less guilty about the problems of this world. <clears throat> and so this, again, in the longer essay, McClay goes on and claims that the only way society knows how to deal with guilt <laughs> is to be a victim. Because victims aren't responsible, they're victims. Someone else did something to them, so they're not guilty. And so now, look around. How do we talk about things? Everybody's a victim. I'm a victim of poverty. I'm a victim of sickness. I'm a victim of disease. I'm a victim of whatever. And if I can claim victim status, everybody else has to feel sorry for me, and I don't have to feel guilty. That's what our culture is becoming. It's, it's mind-boggling. And what do victims deserve? An apology. I'm sorry. I'm sorry that you're a victim. But our apologies are empty. They don't restore, they don't repair either the situation or the relationship. Apology has become a psychological cure for my guilt. So people apologize in, in this modern way of thinking, not because they want to make things right, or not because they want to fix the situation, but because they want to feel better. Well, I apologized. I got that off my shoulders. And, and you can see it in the, in the public apologies we see from public figures in our society. They're empty. And we seem to instinctively know that. And so the conflict increases. Victim status here, victim status there, guilt here, guilt there. Let's do something about it. Let's make a change. But I love the way the author Brooks puts it in his New York Times summary and commentary. He says this. <laughs> what a word picture. Society has become a free-form demolition derby. I liked demolition derbies when I was a kid. What little boy hasn't taken his cards and smashed them together? Society has become a free-form demolition derby of moral confrontation. The cold-eyed fanaticism of students at Middlebury College and other campuses nationwide. The rage of the alt-right. And believe me, there is a lot of moral problem in the alt-right. Holy wars over transgender bathrooms, the furious intensity at every town hall meeting on every subject, a free-form demolition derby of moral outrage. Again, going back to the longer essay, McClay summarizes it this way. To be found blameless is a pipe dream. For the demands of an active conscience are literally as endless as an active imagination's ability to conjure them. To be found blameless is a pipe dream. Think about that. This is how our society is living. That's how those around us are living. It's a pipe dream to be guilt-free. 
What do we do? What do we do? The more things we think of, the more we conjure up, the more guilty we become. I've said this before, I'm going to say it again. Folks, the world around us is looking desperately for answers. They are desperate for answers. They are desperately seeking what Christianity and only Christianity offers. The world wants you, what you have and what you can give to them. Not unlike the psalmist in Psalm 40. I will speak of what God has done to the great congregation. The world wants what we have and what we can give them. <clears throat> and I'll say this again too. You want to change the world? Make more Christians. There's no other method that's going to make things better. Because the world is striving and, and grasping at straws for solutions. Get rid of God, get rid of guilt. Treat it as a mental illness or an emotional instability and treat it with therapy. That doesn't deal with guilt. Guilt is in our hearts because we've broken God's law. And we know it. <laughs> and we Christians know how to deal with that guilt. Admit it. Admit your sin. Seek and receive the forgiveness that God offers in Jesus. Let Jesus take your guilt away from you and do it completely. Let Jesus die to pay for that guilt. Receive his work. Receive the perfect holiness that comes with it through faith, trusting in his work and God's promise of forgiveness and a new life and a clean conscience that comes with it. This is the idea that our author is turning to this morning in the verses before us. <clears throat> We've been hearing in the last few chapters about how Jesus is a better high priest who offers himself and his blood as a better sacrifice permanently, once for all, for all of our sins, dealing with our need to be purified so that we can enter into God's presence, to go behind the curtain with him. That's a work for us and for our salvation. But for the most part, up till now, the discussion has been <clears throat> largely kind of theological and, and maybe academic or objective, talking about the nature and the quality of, of Jesus' work as superior to what has come before. And now in verses 1 to 10 of chapter 10, the author is repeating some themes. I'm sure as I read it, you heard things you've heard before. But he does it in order to emphasize a personal reality, a personal subjective effect that this work has on us as God's people. The subjective benefit of Jesus' work as our high priest is this. No more consciousness of sin. Or to put it another way, no more guilt. For the Christian, there is no more need to feel guilty. Now I want to look at what the author says and how he says it. He introduces here for the first time a prophetic quote about Jesus, uh, put in Jesus' mouth. That's now part of his argument. But then I want to turn to this, what I think is an absolutely powerful reality, the subjective truth that before God, we have a clear conscience, and we are not guilty. Let's explore it together. All right, what does the author say in these verses about the work of Jesus? 
<coughs> well, in verses 1 to 4, he reminds us once again of the inadequacy of the law to make perfect God's people. And it can't make us perfect again, because it's just a shadow of the true reality in the heavenly places. The law can't do it because it has to be continually offered over and over and over again. And he he says something very interesting in verse 2. If it could have made us perfect, if it could have made man perfect, the sacrifices would have been offered only once, and it would have been done. Once and over with. No longer needed to be offered. If the offerings would have cleansed people of their sin, cleansed their consciences, then it would have been done once. And people would be clean and free to move on. Instead, what he says is, in verse 3 and in going into in verse 4, what the sacrifices do in this year after year after year operation of them is remind us continually of our sin. Every year on the Day of the Atonement, according to the Old Covenant, God's people were instructed to recall their sins, seek atonement via that annual sacrifice. But unfortunately, being just a copy of the reality that they were pointing to, the blood of bulls and goats did not take away sins because it could not take away the sins of human beings. And the blood of bulls and goats could not give a clear conscience. And so now the author introduces something new in verses 5 to 7, a quote from Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. But putting these words in the mouth of Jesus himself. Now again, this is Jesus the Word, Jesus the one through whom God has spoken in these last days, going all the way back to chapter 1, verse 2. Jesus speaking acknowledges himself. Now this is not the author speaking, this is Jesus speaking according to the author. That God did not desire sacrifices and offerings. In fact, he took no pleasure in burnt offerings and sin offerings. Instead, what God has done is prepared a body for the word, a body for the son. And in that body, the son has come, as we read in John, the son has come to do God's will, just as it was written about him in the scroll of the book. Jesus is saying that in place of those sacrifices and offerings, he has come to do God's will. And this is what was written about him beforehand. Just as kind of a side note, Matthew Henry sees here, and I think he's right, that this is a reference to that covenant of salvation, the pactum salutis, between God the Father and God the Son that eternal covenant uh, whereby God will give the Son a people on the condition that the Son obeys him and sacrifices on their behalf. So he quotes the psalm in verses 5 to 7. Then in verses 8 to 10, he tells us what this psalm means. When he has said, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, And then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. Jesus himself, again speaking, says, I have come to do your will, and that does away with what came before. This is fulfilling the prophecies written in the book of God. Jesus abolishes that old way of doing things, the sacrifices, the offerings, the burnt offerings, the sin offerings, 
in order to establish a new and a better way of doing things, obeying God's will. And then what the author says is this has consequences. By that will, in other words, by Jesus' obedience to the will of God, in the body with which he has come, this new way sanctifies God's people, those who believe in Christ Jesus as Savior. Put it another way, kind of simply or oversimply maybe, <laughs> Jesus obeying God makes us holy. Jesus obeying God makes you holy. Another technical term, we call this the active obedience of Christ. His obedience satisfies God's requirement for perfect righteousness and perfect holiness. Be holy even as your heavenly Father is, is perfect. Be perfect as he is perfect. Well, we can't do that, so he did it for us. And that's what the author is confirming here. Jesus obeying God perfectly makes us holy. A couple things that he's talking about here. On the one hand, Jesus offers to pay for our sins with his own blood. This is the sacrifice that he makes. But on the other hand, he offers his body, in other words, his obedience, his doing God's will when he was here in the body, and he offers that to make us holy, to sanctify us. On the one hand, by his blood, our sins are paid for. On the other hand, by his act of obedience in the body, his doing God's will, we become holy, we become sanctified. And this brings us back to something we've talked about time and time again. The, the great exchange, sweet trade of our sin in exchange for Jesus' perfect obedience. Our sin credited to his account, made his, and he dies to pay for it, and then God crediting his perfect obedience, his perfect holiness to our account, as if it's ours. And so now God looks at us and sees us as perfectly holy, clothed in the righteousness of Christ. And we see the, the, the other part of the story as well. Justification is one thing. Sanctification is, is the partner that goes with it all the time. And so he sends his Holy Spirit to make us willing and able to do God's will. Slowly but surely, cleanse ourselves from our sinful behavior and become a little bit more holy, bit by bit, day by day. Justification and sanctification. This is what the author has been talking about. And it has a profound personal impact on us and how we should think about things and therefore how we should live our lives. And that's back in verse 2. This is a powerful question that the author asks with some powerful implications. <clears throat> if all of this is true, the good news implied in Verse 2 is true for all who put their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ. What the author is telling us in asking this question, if the law was good, then wouldn't it have removed the consciousness of sins? Well, clearly it did not. So clearly the work of Jesus does. It's the work of Jesus that purifies us. It's the obedience of God that cleanses our consciousness, our consciences as well. <laughs> And now think about that word for a minute. What does it mean to be conscious? 
or to be conscious of something. Uh, well, think of the opposite. What, if, what, what is it like if you're unconscious? Well, you're out. You, there's no awareness of anything. You might be in a coma. You might be in a deep sleep of some kind. You're not aware of what's going around on around you at all. So to be conscious is to be aware. To be conscious of something is to be aware of it, to notice it, um, to pay attention to it. The work of Jesus removes consciousness of sin. We're not aware of it. We don't think about it. We don't dwell upon it. I'll qualify that in a little bit. To be conscious of sin is to be aware of it, to note of it. But here, the word that's used here is not just an awareness, but a moral awareness, a moral consciousness. So that I don't just notice my sins, oh look, there's my sins. But when I notice them, I also have that sense of guilt about them. I'm guilty because of this sin. I deserve punishment because of these sins. So here, here's where I think the NIV actually does a better job in the translation because it captures this idea of moral awareness so well. The NIV puts it this way, if the sacrifices had worked, then people would no longer have felt guilty for their sin. That's what the author is saying. If those Old Testament sacrifices had worked, then people would no longer feel guilty for their sins. Well, then what does that imply for the work of Jesus? For those who put their faith and hope and trust in him, we no longer feel guilty for our sins. That's what the author is saying. That's powerful. You are not guilty. And that is one of the powerful claims of the gospel. Your sins are taken away. All of them. Every single one. Including all those that you haven't committed yet. We heard from the author quoting Jeremiah 31, the promise of a new covenant. Part of that promise is that God remembers our sins no more. We're not guilty before him. So if God doesn't remember them, why should you? Why do you? Don't get caught up in the world's false religion. And this is a false religion. Don't get caught up in the world's false pagan religion of guilt. You are free in Christ Jesus. And those whom the Son sets free are free indeed. There is, therefore, no longer any condemnation for those in Christ Jesus' words. Remember the quote from that article? Society around us, to be found blameless, to be found guiltless, to have no guilt, is a pipe dream. For them, yes. But for us, no, it is not. Most definitely not a pipe dream. It's possible and it's real. By grace and through faith in Jesus Christ, you are found blameless. Those of you who have already believed are blameless. That is a truth that is yours in Christ Jesus. You are not guilty. 
I don't want any, any wallowing in guilt. <laughs> it's not appropriate for believers in Christ. A couple practical thoughts here. One, when it comes to the world around us, and the other, uh, more personal in our, in our worship and our, our faith. I really do believe the world has a, a religion of guilt, if you would. And so there's a contrast, I think, between how we approach things in the world, the problems of the world, and how they do. The world, is, the world feels guilty about poverty. The world feels guilty about racism. The world feels guilty about environmental problems or whatever other problems that may exist. I don't, and you shouldn't either, in Christ. Now, what's the contrast? Why do I care about the world around me, the creation that God has made? Well, I care about it because he's given it to me, and he's given it to you to be stewards of and to take care of. This is his creation. Of course we should love it. Of course we should take care of it. But I'm not going to be guilted into environmental issues because someone makes me feel guilty about deforestation or pollution or too much plastic in the ocean. I'm not going to let them guilt me Do you you see a difference? I'm not going to let them guilt me into following their cause. I won't join their cause. It's a pagan thought process. We have a better cause given to us by our God himself. I'm not going to join with these people in their guilt-driven pursuit of atonement, of absolution, by doing good works of recycling or conservation. I'll recycle if I want to because I think it's a good idea to help preserve God's creation. But I'm not going to be made to feel guilty by a bunch of pagans. And you shouldn't either. Take the poor. I'm going to care for the poor not because I feel guilty about having more money than they do and I want to make others feel guilty so that either by force through taxes or by coercion, through charities, we somehow, again, try to make atonement for our guilt, make absolution for our sins and restitution by giving things to the poor. That's not why I'm going to give to the poor. I'm going to give to the poor because they're my neighbor that God told me to love. He told me to give them things that I have if they need them, and so I'm going to do it. Not because I feel guilty. That's a false motivation. Another example, I hate these TV commercials with a passion. Forgive me, but I hate them. (laughs) And every time they come on, I turn the channel. You've all probably seen it, the TV commercial that shows these adorable, and they are adorable. They're adorable kids with magnetic little personalities and charisma. They've got physical deformities of some kind, and they smile, and they're well-spoken, and they talk about how this wonderful organization and this wonderful hospital Hospital has given them the ability to do all these wonderful things and help them. But then they say this. Your contribution shows that you care. No, it does not. Do not guilt me into giving to your organization. Because the implication is if I don't give, I am guilty. Baloney. I am not going to let a bunch of pagans compel me to worship at their altar of guilt. Now, I will care for those who are physically or mentally or emotionally or otherwise disadvantaged, again, because these are my neighbors, 
and God has told me to love my neighbor. Of course I'm going to care for them. Of course I'm going to do what I can to love my neighbor, but I'm not ever going to do it out of guilt. And I don't want you to do it out of guilt either. Christ, his obedience has removed guilt from you completely. I want to do these things instead because God's new covenant law is written on my heart and I love it. And I see its beauty and its goodness. And I want to do it. I love to do good things for others. I love to do good things for society or or culture because it's pleasing to me and it's pleasing to my God. And I love my God with all my heart and my soul and my mind and my strength. This is our motivation, not guilt. Not trying to atone for our misdeeds. That's baloney. Now a second quick thought about our life as believers, and specifically about sin. If we're not guilty, why, when we come into worship, do we confess our sins? Why are we told to ask for forgiveness in the Lord's Prayer for our sins? This is Jesus' instruction, after all. Well, we don't confess our sins to deal with our guilt. Our guilt is already taken care of. Jesus already dealt with it. We confess because it's just a practical thing, isn't it? We still sin. We're still battling with our flesh. And that continued sin, well, it pains us and it shames us. We love God and we want to do his will. So our sin frustrates us. We want it to end. We want it to go away. We want to do the things we know we should do instead of the opposite. And we want to not do the things we shouldn't do instead of the opposite. So we we confess so that we can admit our sin to God, be honest and forthright before him, and then seek his help in overcoming it. Confessing not to receive forgiveness over and over and over again as we commit sin over and over and over again, but to remind ourselves of and to claim the forgiveness that is already ours in Christ Jesus. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. There we go again. Forgiveness of sins, justification, cleansing of all unrighteousness, sanctification, exactly the kinds of things that this author has been writing about. We don't confess because we've fallen out of God's favor and we need to get back in it. We confess because we... We're troubled and ashamed of our own sin and we want help in overcoming it. And we know that we have forgiveness of God and it's healthy and good to be reminded of that. The world around us, again, thinks that being found blameless is a pipe dream. Brothers and sisters, it is not a pipe dream. It's the reality every single man, woman, and child who puts their faith, hope, and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you believe, then the verdict is already in. Not guilty. Let me pray for us. Father, we do thank you for the forgiveness that is ours in and through Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. We thank you for the fact that our sins were nailed to the tree with him. 
dealt with fully and completely, washed away, removed as far as the east is from the west, as high as the heavens are above the earth. And that in its place you have credited to, credited to our account his perfect obedience, his perfect holiness, his perfect righteousness. Help us to walk in that righteousness. Help us, like our Savior, to do your will. Keep us from sin. Teach us your paths. And remind us, don't let us live lives full of guilt, but the freedom, filled with the freedom, the knowledge of the freedom, the joy of the freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. In his name we pray all of these things. Amen.